Hello, my name is Pastor Brian Taylor of Forest Avenue Baptist Church here in Sherman, Texas. And you're listening to our sermon series in the book of Philippians. We're so thankful that you're listening. And also, we would like to invite you to one of our services if you're here in Sherman or Grayson County area. Our address is 106 West Forest Avenue. And our number is 903-892-3506. You can email the church at church at fabcsherman.com. Thank you so much and have a great day. We are starting a new book today, uh, the letter to the Philippians. And um, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read the first verse to you, but you can turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And you say, well, Pastor, why are we in Acts? If you say we're in fifth you know, uh, Philippians, why are we studying Acts chapter 16? Because the story behind how the gospel came to Philippi and how the letter was even needed to be written to the Philippians begins in Acts chapter 16. Um, as Paul writes uh, to the Philippians, he calls them saints in Christ Jesus. Um, as we are going to look at this uh, section of Scripture today, Acts 16, you're going to hear the stories of three different Christians, of three different people and three different households of how the gospel came to them. Um, let me read to you Philippians 1, verse 1. It took me a minute to find it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseer and the deacons. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, so setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Now this is an island in the Aegean Sea, okay? It sits right between uh, Greece and Turkey. So if you're wondering where they're at, they are in the western part of Turkey when Paul has the vision about going and the man from Macedonia. So they set sail and come to this island of Samothrace and then following day, they went to Neapolis, which is on the coast of Greece, and from there they went up about 14 miles to the city of Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day he went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention 
to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, she said, You're coming to my house, missionaries. I'm taking care of you. Okay? Paul and Silas in prison. So verse 16. And as we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination uh, and, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept saying this for many days, kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the innermost prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas, you've heard this story, were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors flung open and everyone's bonds unfastened. And when the jailer woke, he saw the prison doors were open and he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and they rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in that same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. And then he brought them up to the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that, they, that he had believed in God. Verse 35, But when it was day... The magistrate sent the police to Paul and Silas and to that jailer's home, and he said, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrate said, You guys got to go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison, and now they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they, that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out, asked them to leave the city and so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers and encouraged them, they departed. As we begin our study today in this letter, written by Paul to the Philippians, we begin by asking a series of questions. How did the church start? 
what type of people made up the church in Philippi? What were the reasons Paul was writing to the church in Philippians? Were there any strengths or weaknesses in the church? Was Paul writing to encourage or was he writing to rebuke? And then finally, how can we apply what we learn about this church to our church? So let us dive into the history and the origin of this story as how Philippi came to be and how uh, the Philippian church came to be. First of all, let's talk a little bit about roadblocks and closed doors. How many of you ever had a roadblock, a barrier in your life where it became evident that God closed a door in your life? Uh, many, many times, even the story of Sarah and I coming here to Forest Avenue is a series of closed doors and where God allowed one to be open. We had applied uh, for a ministry position over in Shreveport, Louisiana, over there, I think in Bossier City over there. And it was a big church. It was a minister of administration. And I was going to be this guy who was really not on the stage. I would be behind the scenes. And I'll never forget, we came down to like the last four people in that interview process, and the pastor looked at me, and he said, Brian, I'm just concerned. He said, you're a guy that's always been either in worship ministry you've been on the stage or in some kind of ministry you've been before the people. I don't know if you could handle being behind the scenes. And at the time, I said, oh, I'm ready for that because I thought I was needing a time to hide a little bit away. And, uh, but that's not what the Lord had for me. In fact, on our way up here, we were driving to Forest Avenue, and I got a call, and it was uh, the guy from that other church, and he said, Pastor, we think you're not the one. I'm sorry to have to give you this news. And I said, it's okay. My wife and I are driving in view of a call to Forest Avenue Baptist Church. Now, that was six and a half years ago. I said, all you did was confirm to me that we've chosen the right place and they've chosen us and that God has opened a door and closed another. Paul was walking through Myasia wanting to go up into Bithynia to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit would not allow him to go. It was a closed door. And in the night, he had a dream and a man from Macedonia was pleading with him, come over to us and preach to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they knew what they were supposed to do in that moment. God closed a door so he could open a window. He opened up a way for Paul to go to begin this church, the church in Philippi. There are four guys with him. Silas, who you've already heard of. Timothy, he had just picked up at Lystra when he had come back through Lystra. Uh, if you remember anything about Paul and the missionary journeys, the first time he took Barnabas and they had a young man with him named John Mark. John Mark, who wrote, by the way, the Gospel of Mark, uh, and by the way, that's the first Gospel, really, in the order, so if you're going to read them in sequential order, how they were written. It was the earliest Gospel. And John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas had a splitting of ways when it came to the second missionary journey. And Paul said, I ain't taking John Mark. Look what he did to us last time. Barnabas, being the forgiving guy that he was, knew Mark had changed, and so they went their separate ways. But Paul took Silas. But when he was in Lystra, he found Timothy. And Luke also went with him, who wrote this, uh, the book of Acts. 
And so here they are in, in uh, Troas, setting sail for across the Aegean Sea over to Macedonia. And they get there. And it reminds me of the Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man may plan his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The Apostle Paul knew by his experience, experience the way the Lord works. A closed door is merely a tool God uses to get us where we belong. Have you ever thought about that? A closed door is just a tool that God uses to get us where we're supposed to go. And you may be sitting here today and you may be saying, Brian, I, I feel like I've had a series of closed doors in my life. Can I tell you, I, I promise you this, if you will surrender and trust the Lord, He will begin to make His path clear before you. The hardest part is waiting, isn't it? Waiting for God to reveal Himself. Well, ministry in the city, verse 11 begins with talking about ministering in Philippi. And so as, as Paul crosses the Aegean Sea and he heads to this island, he then sets sails for Neapolis and then into Philippi. As Paul remained in the city of Philippi, he was probably looking for an opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But nothing really seemed to open up for him. There was no synagogue there at the time, and he was looking for an opportunity and for people to preach to, and he walked down to the riverside, and on the river banks was a group of woman, women, probably Jewish, though they could have been Gentile, like Lydia, because she's from Thyatira, which is Gentile. She's over in western Turkey, over there in modern-day western Turkey. She is from that area. She's a seller of purple cloth. She's a Gentile woman, and they are meeting because they believe in God and they believe in prayer, but they have yet to hear about Jesus Christ. Now, they're praying on the Sabbath day, which shows that they may have been converts to Judaism, but whatever the reason they were praying, Paul found a warm reception in these women, and they welcomed his teachings. And it would seem that Paul gave some form of invitation to those ladies who wished to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and Lydia was baptized that very day. And when she found out that Paul and his companions had no place to stay, what did she do? She had the gift of hospitality. She opened up her home and she said, Pastor, missionary, brothers, come and stay. I've got these extra rooms. I want to take care of you. I want to make sure you have a place to stay, a, some food to eat. Because she understood that the work they were doing was important. She was emphatic, and she desired to meet their needs, so she opened up her home. Lydia was a woman of no small amount of wealth, by the way. She was a seller of purple cloth. If you know anything about that day and age, it took 8,000 oysters to make one ounce of purple cloth dye. So one ounce of purple dye, 8,000 oysters. Now imagine how much it took to dye a piece of cloth. She had wealth. She was a tradesperson. That path in Philippi, that the Roman road, very, very famous. If you go there today, you can still find it. It's called the Via Ignatia. And you can go and walk down that road that traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica all the way over into Turkey through the mountains. And she 
traded along these routes. And she had people who worked for her. Very rich, very powerful lady, uh, at least in terms of who she sold to. Because a lot of times the only people that could afford this cloth were royalty or had wealth and status. So she comes probably from money. Now, the next person we see saved is a little slave girl. This little girl is, we can call her the annoying convert. All right? This is how it all begins. She is walking around, following Paul, yelling at him every day, over and over and over, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. Listen to their message of salvation. And she just keeps saying it and saying it and saying it. Now, <clears throat> the message she said doesn't sound that bad when you read it, does it? It was the consistency and the fact that she had a demon. You see, sometimes, church, you can have the wrong people doing your advertising campaign. Did you know that? Sometimes, if you have somebody in a leadership position who you know is morally reprehensible, that's the wrong person in your leadership campaign, in your advertising campaign, church, right? And this little girl who had a demon who could tell people's fortune, who was making money for her slave owners, was annoying the fire out of Paul and Silas. She would not be quiet. And finally, after a series of days, he turned around and he said, we're going to get that thing out of you. And he prayed for her, and the demon, she was set free from the demon. Well, what happened to this little slave girl? I, well, immediately, she didn't have the power to tell people's fortunes anymore. Her owners got mad, and they drug Paul and Silas into the market and um, began to accuse them of teaching things that Roman citizens could not practice legally. So the messenger and the message are very important. And Paul had to cast the demon out of this little slave girl's life and he disrupted the economic structure of that little family. The owners of the slave girl had amassed a good bit of wealth by her gift, if you want to call it that, by her fact of her being oppressed and enslaved to this demon. And they became irate, so much so that they drug these two men into the market and began to accuse them and attack them, and the magistrates stripped their clothing off. So now they've been humiliated. They've had almost a riot erupt in the marketplace. They are now punished by being beaten with rods, there's no courtroom decorum. There's no formalities. Essentially, it is the madness of a crowd and false accusations that begin to disrupt the lives of Paul and Silas. And you would think that in the middle of the night, instead of singing hymns to God, they would be scratching their wounds and moaning and complaining about, oh my goodness, did God bring us all the way across this ocean just to have us cast in jail and forgotten about? Well, that's not what they were doing, where is it? They were sitting in the jail cell in the inner sanctum of the prison after having been beaten, singing songs 
to Jesus. And the prisoners were listening. I think this is the most amazing part of the story. You know, because uh, I've visited a couple of jails, and I've been in a couple of units before. And uh, we did prison ministry back when I was 19, 20 years old a couple of times. And I, we've been in some pretty, in Gainesville over there, and some pretty tough places. And I think maybe one place we went to was Huntsville. Maybe Gainesville is wrong, I can't remember. Anyway, and I, can you imagine all of those doors flinging open and all of the stocks and the chains coming off and every prisoner stays put? Nobody rushes out? You see, something had transpired while those men were listening to those songs in the night. As Paul and Silas prayed and sang together, something was working in the heart of each of those men in Philippi who were jailed probably for things that they had done wrong. And they found a way to express their adoration and love for Jesus in the darkest moment of their lives. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found a way to express your adoration and love for Jesus even when stuff is falling apart in your life? And in the middle of the night, the earth began to shake. The room began to shake. All of the chains fell off and all of the doors flung open. Maybe while they were singing a song, we don't know. The Philippian jailer had been doing his job. He had been putting them in the stocks. He threw them in the innermost part of the jail. He, he had been doing his job right. And, but he knew the problem. He knew that if everyone escaped, or even a portion, or even one who was on death row, then he would have to pay the penalty of the person who escaped. And so he was ready to kill himself, the scripture says, and Paul said, don't do it. We're all here. No one is left. And he couldn't believe it. And he rushed in with lights and they turned. Uh, I said turned lights on. I guess they didn't turn them on. I guess they lit the lanterns or whatever. And they, he saw it. And he was overcome by emotion and by what he saw. What he saw was men who would normally be outlaws, men who would normally have very much slit his throat and taken his life, men who would have ran and escaped, sitting there just as they were in peace and in calm and unwilling to leave, listening to Paul and Silas speak. And he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This was revival. The jailer falls down at Paul and Silas' feet and says, what must I do? How can I be saved? And he says simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Because of his decision that night, his whole household came to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me, men, for a second. It is God's design that he use you to spiritually lead your families. You may be in a place today where, ladies, where you are the spiritual leader of your family, maybe because your husband's not a believer, or maybe because just he doesn't see himself as that and he doesn't take upon that role. But I want to speak to the men for a moment. If there is a spouse in your family 
and he is a Christian, it is your responsibility to lead your family spiritually speaking. Now maybe you're a single mom. We have some of those around here. Can I tell you? I know in that predicament it is your responsibility to lead your family spiritually. Things happen and God gives grace and he will help you do that. But men, it is our responsibility to lead our wives spiritually and to love them and to nourish and to protect them and to teach our children to believe in Jesus. And this jailer went home believing in Christ and he not only did he believe, but because of his belief, his whole household believed. And if you study the statistics of how churches grow and, and how families are affected by the gospel, everybody will tell you if the man of the house gets saved, there is a 70-something percent chance that the rest of the house will get saved. If a child gets saved, it's something like 13% that the rest of the house. If a mother gets saved, it's still something like 20, 30%. But when a man gets saved, it is oftentimes that he brings the whole household to the church. We need men who follow after Christ. You know, for far too long, for far too long in the church, men have sat by and let women do everything. And let me tell you something. Women can do everything. And oftentimes they, women have kept the church alive because of Lydia and all these women down throughout the ages. They have kept the church alive when men have forsaken their roles and their responsibilities in the church. But we need men to rise up and begin to lead their families after God. Listen, this isn't about um, the difference uh, between uh, feminism and masculinity and anything like that. This is about the, the need of God and the hour that God uses each and every one of us. Men are called to lead in certain capacities and women are called to lead in certain capacities. Guess what happens when there's a woman that comes to me and needs counseling? Guess who I go to? Sarah Jane. Come help me, right? Because I don't always understand all of the ins and outs of the soul of another woman. God didn't make me that way. He gave me gifts to understand certain things about my own and also certain things about... But I understand, guys, you know why? I is one. I don't understand all of us, but I understand enough to know that I understand what besets us and what we struggle with, what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are. And ladies, vice versa. And there are times in life where we need to turn to the opposite sex and say, go get them. She's all yours. And when the ladies turn to us and say, go get them, sir, it's your time to spiritually lead the family. Because of his decision, his whole household was saved. Men, it is God's design that you lead your families closer to Jesus Christ. It is not your wife's job to spiritually lead the family. It is yours. Now, I don't think she should be working against you. I know that. But together you should raise your children as unto the Lord. Show them how God forgives sin. Help them learn to pray. Teach them the Holy Scriptures. Uh, I have a lot of men that come to me and they say, Pastor, we just don't know the Bible. Um, we don't, we don't, 
we, when you talk about things in Sunday school, we don't always understand what you're talking about. And here's the easiest way to do it. Get you a little children's Bible, you know, and um, sit down with your kids, especially like if, if you have some that are like mine and uh, they're little, and get you a children's Bible and every night before they go to sleep say, hey, let me read you a story. They won't even know that you're trying to learn it too. They'll think you know all this good stuff. And then you graduate to the big boy Bible, right? I'm telling you, do whatever it takes. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Learn the scriptures and lead your families closer to Jesus. Um, the Word of God saves people and transforms lives. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Well, lastly, we see something very interesting about these three converts, the Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. We see that they come from different sections of society. One is rich, another is a slave and poor. One is middle class. The Roman jailer would have very much been middle class. He wouldn't have been highfalutin. He, they all are Gentiles. They, they probably are different nationalities in that one is from western Turkey and then one is from Rome, the Roman jailer, and then one, maybe we don't know where the slave girl came from, we don't know if she was from North Africa, which they did have Ethiopians and different people back then. We know Philip and the Ethiopian, if you've ever studied that story. We don't know what color she was or what ethnicity she was. But I guarantee you the Philippian church was multiracial, multi-economic, multicultural. How did Paul inspire confidence in this multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic church, how did he strengthen them, become strong in their faith, strengthen them in the area of unity? Let me tell you how he did it. God orchestrated a single event as they were let out of jail, and Paul used it, saw it as an opportunity to give confidence to the church. Here's what he did. The magistrates came, and they said, you got to leave now. And Paul said, how dare these guys? They, they didn't know we were Roman citizens, but I'm about to tell them. They beat us and threw us in jail, and they didn't even give us a fair trial. Okay? Now, all of a sudden, these guys know the law, and they are scared out of their wits. Because just like we would see, they see lawsuit waiting to happen. Right? We've put these guys in jail. We didn't give them a trial. And they are what? They're Roman citizens? We're in trouble. And Paul said, you know what you guys are going to do? When we're good and ready to leave, we'll leave. And you'll come and you will escort us out of this city. You know how much confidence that gave that new, newly birthed church? My goodness. They could walk around with their heads held high and say, man, we are following Jesus Christ. And these magistrates can't do nothing because they just escorted our leader right out the gates of the city. We're the ones that have the confidence that Jesus Christ will not allow any one of us to touch us until it is our time. Brothers and sisters, he inspired confidence in those saints. 
there's a couple of things that I see that all saints have in common. It's not their economic background. It's not their um, racial background, is it? All saints have one thing in common that you can see with all three of these people. They all three were lost and then they were saved. They all three didn't know Jesus and then they met him and he changed them from sinners into saints. You know what the difference is between a sinner and a saint? They have been born again. They've been changed from the inside out. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They're not perfect. They've been born again. They have put all of their hope and all of their trust in Jesus. He has become Lord of their life. They have surrendered to Him and they are trying as best as they can to be obedient to Him and listen to His voice, to read His Word and pray to Him. But they are not perfect people. They are not rich people. They are not poor people. They are black, white, Hispanic, red, green. I don't care what color. They're everything. And folks, in our neighborhood, they are the same way. We have everybody down here on the south side of Sherman. We've got all kinds. And as a church, we must be ready to minister to all kinds of people. Paul said, I make myself, what? A slave to all men. That I might win one, or more than one. Brothers and sisters, we present the gospel to people of all different, we just had four guys come back from Mexico down there building a church with their brother Mexicans and some of them Mayans <laughs> had some short little Mayans with you too didn't you guys I'm telling you they just came back and they had a great great time but they, they can testify to you and as you already know that our brothers in Jesus Christ over there in Hermosa and Palenque and in Chiapas love the Lord and have been born again just as you have we are one in Christ. Maybe this day you are saying, I really need a church home. I need a church family. I need to be a part of an eclectic group of people who have one thing in common, and it's not the color of their skin. They all have been born again. They all are placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And they're all doing everything they can do to worship Him and to love Him and to follow hard after Him. You know, we have all kinds of differences. The kind of music we like. The kind of clothing we wear. Uh, it's, just, it's just different. And the generational gap. We have old and young little and big all kinds but in Christ we're all called saints we belong to a family it is our it is Jesus Christ's blood that unites us you know sometimes the accusation in church 
is often, well, everybody in that church is related. I'm here to tell you that not everybody at Forest Avenue is related. Okay? I've been here six and a half years, and I'm not related to any of you. Except for my wife, I guess. I'm married to her six and a half years. Not related, though. Brothers and sisters, we're called saints. Maybe the Lord's calling you to be a part of this place, this, this uh, group of saints. We're not, we don't use that word and throw it around because we're perfect. We, don't, we know we're not. But we all have been changed. That's the difference between a sinner and a saint. They have been born again. They believe in Jesus Christ. They've surrendered their lives to him. Thank you for being here today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I pray as we have this invitation today that you would use it for the glory of your kingdom.